word. He, his word holds the atomic structures of all material things together. We are held together by him. If he can hold the universe together, guess what? He can hold you together. Amen? Amen? And he's also the undisputed head of the church. No man is, he is. Now this time we're going to explore Jesus as our great reconciler. Really important we understand these things we're going to look at tonight. Now read this with me. We're beginning, I, I believe this is verse, well, well, we'll see what verse it is at the end. But let's read it together now. For it pleased the Father that in him all the ful fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. There's the magic word. Five words in, <clears throat> up there, uh, reconcile. And those verses 19 and 20 of chapter 1. Now, remember, after setting before us the deity of Christ, because that's what Paul has done in the first 18 verses, he has let us know, answering the cult that was attacking the Colossian church and any cult thereafter, Paul is letting us know Jesus is deity. All right? God. He's deity. Now, after establishing that, and I think we've got it here, Paul now sets before us the death of Christ. First the deity, then the death of Christ. Scripture reveals that God has no plan, no program, no purpose for planet Earth, and I would venture to say the entire universe, that does not center itself in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. That's how central He is. And while we must never let Him be marginalized, um, diluted, watered down, cheapened. Jesus was very God. Now, we're now confronted with the most amazing of all the purposes of God to save ruined sinners of Adam's fallen race at infinite cost. How many of you can say, I was a ruined sinner? Seriously. Ruined sinner. Didn't matter if you were out doing drugs, alcohol, whatever. You might have been straight laced, conservative. Never had a traffic ticket. You were still a ruined sinner apart from Christ. Now, we're going to see a quote from J.B. Phillips. He writes these words. So the spotlight swings from the deity of Christ to the death of Christ, from the dizziest heights to the uttermost depths, from light unapproachable to night unbelievable. And from the thunderous applause of the heavenly host to the bitter blasphemies of murderous men when Jesus was crucified. We're going from his deity to his death. In a single sentence, down we come from the realm where Christ is crowned with glory and honor to the place where he was crucified in weakness and in shame, taking your place and my place on the cross. And you and I were crucified with him, that is, our old man of sin, died with him. And I'm going to repeat that over and over until light bulbs start going off. I want you to understand that old man of sin that led you and I into everything we did, the whole cycle of a sinful lifestyle, that old Adamic nature that we inherited from Adam was crucified with Jesus. 
And so where is it now? Still back there on the cross with Jesus. And guess what? Can I tell you? He can't be uncrucified. You know why? Because you can't crucify yourself. God crucified him. God crucified him. God nailed him to the tree. So now we are to live in newness of life. That's why Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives within me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. So that old drug user, that old cursor, that old blasphemer, that old God-hater, that old rebel, that arrogant one, that, that, that sinning one, crucified by God to the cross. And now we've been given a new nature. If any man be in Christ, he is a brand new creation. The old has passed away and all has become new. So, got to get that. That's, that's what we call doctrine. But doctrine is a good thing. It's not dry, dead, lifeless. It's good. Because it tells us what Jesus did for us. Now, Paul goes on. Having made peace through the blood of his cross, writes Paul, by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him I say whether they are things on earth or things in heaven. Now, wait a minute. I didn't know that anything in heaven needed to be reconciled. Hold that thought a minute. One might think that at the side of the cross, God would open up heaven's entire arsenal to destroy his son's killers. How many of you would have the way Jesus was treated, beard plucked out, beaten beyond recognition, nailed to a tree, mocked, ridiculed. If that's my boy down there and I've got the power, I don't stand by unless there is a plan that it's very hard for us to wrap our minds around. But instead of opening up his arsenal against man, God opened up his arms in reconciliation when Jesus died on the cross. Paul begins with the means of our reconciliation. The blood of Jesus' cross, that's the means. Everybody say with me, the means. How did God reconcile you and I? By the blood and only the blood and solely the blood and uniquely the blood and there is no other way to be reconciled to God but the blood of Jesus on the cross. I don't care what your intentions are, how good they are, there is no reconciliation to God apart from the blood of the cross. You can't be reconciled hugging a tree. You can't be reconciled being a Buddhist. You can't be reconciled by doing good things and giving money away to people. You can't be reconciled by, by doing works of compassion. None of that will ever reconcile you. The only thing that puts your hand in God's hand is the means of the blood. That's it. That's it. You say, well, that's narrow, Pastor Jeff. Jesus said it was a narrow way. Well, that, that, that's not very politically correct. He's not politically correct. Rather than waging war with man over it, God made peace through Jesus' blood. So when we say, Lord, I come to you based on your blood, for the first time in our entire life, the weight of sin is lifted off of us and the peace of God settles down on us. God's peace through the blood. Now, rather than punish us over the blood, 
God pardoned us through the blood. This vast and amazing plan of redemption began in a past eternity. And this is, i got to tell you, I, it helps me to understand what I'm about to share with you. We, we've got to wrap our minds around the fact that the plan of redemption began before there was a world, before the creation, before Genesis 1-1. Now we're dealing with God. Now we're dealing with the massive reality of a God who had no beginning and no end. So before he created the world, before he ever said, let there be light, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit decided they would act in creation. They had a conference. But through total foreknowledge of all things, God's omniscient foreknowledge, he also knew that if they acted in creation, they would have to act in redemption. Because God knows the end from the beginning. Isn't that what it says about God in Isaiah and other places? God knows the end from the beginning. Before the beginning begins, God already knows the end of the beginning. And that's because he's God. Nothing else can do that. No one else can do but God. That's what makes God God. So he said if we act in creation, we're going to have to act in redemption because they're going to eat that fruit. That's why I tell you, God never says, oops, and he never says, well, I'll be. He never does. So, watch this, John the Revelator calls Jesus the lamb that was slain from before the foundation of the world. Knowing that man was going to fall, this divine conference between God Father, God Son, God Holy Ghost decided, all right, we're going to act in creation. We're going to create man. He will fall. We're going to have to act in redemption. How will we redeem? God the Son, before there was light, said, I will die for them. Can you say with me, heavy? That's deep. But that's what happened. Because look, it tells it. He was slain. It was a done deal in God's mind from before the foundation of the world. He was slain. It just took time to work out what was already done in God's mind. God full well that knew, uh, knew well that uh, Lucifer would rebel and ultimately seduce Eve, who in turn coaxed Adam into sin. Of course, Adam made up his mind it wasn't Eve's fault. She was first, but he didn't have to do it. Sin would spread like an ugly plague throughout the earth. God saw it coming. God saw it give rise to graveyards, cancer wards, insane asylums, prisons, and endless wars. All of the pain and ache and tragedy of the history of man, God saw it coming. He said, we've got to have an answer, a solution. How will we do it? Because it posed a problem. Here was a problem. If God can have a problem, here was the problem. God's holiness said, punish them. God's love said, pardon them. The solution was simple, but it was profound. Now keep in mind, God's holy. A lot of people in churches forget that. We, we, we like focusing on his love, but he's also holy. 
And holiness must punish sin. It must. So he's got holiness and man rebels. He's got to punish. No way around it. I've got to do it. I've got to punish sin. But I'm also love. Love incomprehensible. Love beyond anything we can imagine. I'm also love, so I've got to pardon them, but what will I do? Punish, pardon, pardon, punish. What will I do? How can I do it? How can I reconcile the two? God passed sentence against the human race. The maximum sentence commensurate with absolute holiness was death. The reason man began to die is because of sin. With sin came death. Death is the final result of sin. This was followed by damnation in that dreaded hell originally created for the devil and his angels. Don't let any false teacher around today tell you hell only happens on this earth. If it's only on this earth, then why in the world did Christ even come? To deliver us from what? Oh no. I, I cannot comprehend it, but I accept it by faith because my Bible tells me there is a hell. And Jesus talked about hell more than any person in the Bible and warned about it. All right. So man died and man was doomed. Then, in the person of Jesus Christ, God himself, God himself paid the penalty. When Jesus hung on the cross between heaven and earth, and somehow in the unfathomable workings of God, your sin and mine was laid upon him. And guess what, church? Not just laid upon him, but he took the rap for it. He took the judgment for it. He took the blame for it. He took the fire for it. Selah. Think about it. What's the worst thing you ever did? Jesus was judged for it. When he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was enduring a horror of great darkness. We will never understand this side of heaven. Because at that moment, for the first time in eternity past and ever again in eternity future, God the Son experienced separation from God the Father as he took your sin and mine upon himself and the fire of God's judgment fell on him on the cross. And our old man was crucified with him. That body of death, that sinful nature, crucified with him. On the cross, the demands of God's holiness and the demands of his love have been met. I love the psalm that says, Psalms 85.10, Mercy and truth are met together. That's the cross. Mercy and truth... Mercy and righteousness, righteousness and peace kissed each other on the cross. Justice was satisfied and love was satisfied. Do you get it? Justice hit God's, God's justice was satisfied because Christ Jesus took the judgment. But his love was satisfied because in him we were redeemed and pardoned. Boy, I love that. So on that cross, here's justice on one side, here's mercy on the other, here's judgment on one side, here's pardoning on the other. 
And I love the cross, and I'm thankful for the cross. And the older I get, the harder I preach the cross. Because I'm going to tell you, your healing is in that cross. Your wisdom is in that cross. Your peace is in that cross. Your wholeness is in that cross. Your eternal life is in that cross. Your pardon is in that cross. Your sins are washed away in that cross. Your old man is on that cross. Thank God for the cross. This was the means of our reconciliation. Now next, Paul points out the measure of our reconciliation. That is, how far did it go? What did it encompass? The measure of our reconciliation. God's reconciliation will extend to two realms, heaven and earth. Let's read verse 20 together. And by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him whether things where? On earth or where? In heaven having made peace through the blood of his cross. Now, he's talking about reconciliation on earth and reconciliation in heaven. What is he talking about? This verse makes it clear that both heaven and earth were defiled by sin. That's why it says in Romans 8, the whole creation is groaning, waiting for the revelation of the sons of God, waiting for the consummation of all things in the church to be raptured and God to wrap this thing up. The, the, the creation is groaning because the creation was affected by sin. And I love God's creation. I'm a huge fan of God's creation. Now, I love the Creator more than the creation, but i got to tell you, I love what He did. I mean, I do. I love what He did. I love the critters. I love the birds. I, I love the, the magnificence, the stars, everything in His creation. Kathy and I were in East Texas and out there where, for some reason, you can see the stars better. Maybe because there's no smog. I don't know. No lights. But she, we went out, and there were cajillions of stars twinkling and just piercing the night. And, we, and she said, well, look at those stars. And you look at that, and, and truly, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows His handiwork. Day by day, they utter speech. Night by night, they show and preach and teach the knowledge of God. This verse makes it clear that Heaven and earth were defiled by sin. Sin began in heaven. It didn't begin on earth. It began in the heart of the highest and most glorious created being in the universe, Lucifer, son of the morning, a musician. I don't mean anything by that. <laughs> but the Bible <clears throat> intimates that there were actual pipes, as in timbrels or pipes, built into him. That's where sin began. And in light of this, God intends to create both a new heaven and a new earth. All trace of sin is going to be removed, and both spheres will be reconciled to God. His reconciliation also extends to total rebels on earth, and that would be you and me. Total, complete rebels we were, if we're in Christ tonight. And you... He says in verse 21, read it with me, saints. And you who once were alienated and enemies. Wait a minute, stop. Were you an enemy of God? Say, yes, I was. You were. You were. Of course you were. And so was I. You who once were alienated, separated from him, enemies in your mind by wicked doings, wicked works. Yet now he has reconciled. So he reconciled total rebels. 
While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Paul says we are mentally alienated. If you're not in Christ tonight, if you haven't come to him, anyone in this room or anybody listening by radio, if you're not in Christ tonight, you are mentally alienated from God. Man's battlefield is the mind. And I've told you a lot, and I'll repeat it again. God goes for the heart, but Satan goes for the mind. Satan goes for your thinking. He goes for your thought processes. He went for Eve's mind, her thinking. He goes for our mind and our thinking. In our minds, we were alienated from God, and we were his enemies in our thoughts. And that's not, that shouldn't be a surprise to anybody. False religions that deny Jesus Christ flourish all around us. Evolution, secularism, atheism, agnosticism, all the isms that are against God. In countless ways, man's mind is held captive by the devil. Even to the point of being blinded by the God of this world. Blinded by the devil. And we are morally alienated. He says, quote, alienated by wicked works. That's talking about actions. What you think, you will do. So he naturally starts out with the thoughts and goes down into actions. You are as you think, as a man thinks in his heart. So is he and so will he do. Your feet follow your thoughts. So wicked thoughts lead to wicked works, and that's the story of mankind. Sin has debased and ruined humanity. We're in a ruined world. Look at it. Just watch the news for 10 minutes. It's a ruined world. It's people rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. Let's fix this, fix that, you know, Take care of the economy. Take care. Listen, our problems are so profoundly deep. And, and at the bottom of, of that deep, dark well is a sin problem. We are alienated from God in our mind and alienated from God in our works. Sin has debased and ruined humanity. Only through the reconciliation of the blood of the cross can we be saved from it. That's it. Sin makes us aliens and enemies of God. It separates us from God mentally and morally, period. Now, Paul next points out the meaning of our reconciliation. Why did God do it? Read it with me, can you? To present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Wow. Why did God reconcile you and me? Why did he deliver us from death? To present us holy, blameless, and above reproach in his sight. When God looks at you and me, all he sees is the blood of Christ. Do you believe that? Some of you say you believe it, but you don't live that way. You're always walking around feeling bad about yourself. If you've repented of all your sins, what about being convicted of your righteousness instead of endlessly convicted about sin? If you're walking with God, why not come to the conclusion and realize that, that when Satan accuses us before God's throne as he did Job, God has a response. Satan, all I can see is the precious blood of Christ. That's all I can see. That's it. The sin you accuse them of, Satan, is under the blood of my son. 
I see no faults. I see no flaws. I see no blemish. I see no wrong. Period. None. Do you believe that? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes us white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Give the Lord a hand for that. Amen. That's good. Amen. Thank God for such a mighty reconciliation. Isn't that wonderful? Now let's move on. Paul's going to talk about our standing and in, in, uh, talk about our standing, or he's going to take us from our standing in Christ to our state, and I don't mean Texas. Our condition, or in light of everything he's done for you and me, what should our response be? Read it with me. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard which was preached to every creature under heaven of which I Paul became a minister in light of all that Jesus has done we are to be loyal to him oh yeah I mean look at what he's done look at what he's done so pastor Jeff I'm in one terrible place right now in my life let me ask you something are you saved has the blood washed away your sin? Well, yeah, but that's, that's about the only thing I've got going for me. Then you've got way more going for you than Donald Trump. Way more going for you than people who may have billions of dollars, beautiful homes, expensive cars, but their souls are lost. What can a man give in exchange for his soul? Nothing. Nothing is more valuable. So if you're saved, you can start right there and begin to thank God. Thank you, Lord, that, you know, I could have been still in darkness today. I could have been going through that sinful lifestyle, living that sinful cycle, but you reached down and you saved me and you washed me and you convicted me of my sin and showed me who you were and I can praise you for that. I can start there. If you continue in the faith, he says, if you continue in the faith, no demand the Lord places on you and I is too great. Songwriter Isaac Watts put it this way. I love this. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine. Demands my heart. Demands my life. Demands my all. Now let me be clear about something because I know what you're thinking when you, when you see that. If you continue in the faith, uh-oh, he's talking about losing your salvation. If you don't continue in the faith, you sunk. Let me show you what it's talking about. I know I'm treading on ice here, thin ice. Paul's not casting doubt on our salvation with his use of the phrase, if you continue. His verb usage is in a tense that means this. If you continue in the faith, which you will assuredly do. It's not assuming you may not and you may be lost again. It's assuming that because you're saved, you will. I'm just telling you the verb tense. 
And if you have an issue with it, you can take it up with Paul. Because I'm giving you the verb tense. When all else fails, follow directions. When all else fails, look at the language. The verb tense, is, that's what it means. It's not a question of if you do this or that, you will be saved. Because you can't do anything to save you. Right? By grace you're saved through faith, not, that not of yourselves. It didn't say 98% of your salvation is grace by faith, the rest of it's up to you, dude. By grace you're saved through faith. That not of yourself. I mean, is that what it says? Now watch. He didn't say if you do this or that, you'll stay saved. You are saved by grace through faith. It's a question of because you are saved, you will do this or that. See, I believe in the perseverance of the saints. Do I need, I'm sensing, linger there a little bit longer, Pastor Jeff. No. I'm just going to leave it there. But I'm going to tell you that's the verb test and that's what it means. So it's not telling you you're losing it. All right, now. Next, Paul says, we are to live for him identified with his cross. Read it with me in verse 24. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. Now this statement, what in the world can he mean? I'm filling up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. You read that and you go, wait a minute. Jesus said it's finished. How in the world can he be filling up in his flesh what is lacking. There wasn't anything lacking in the cross. So what is he talking about? I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Surely the sufferings of Christ were complete. Amen? Anybody disagree with that? No, they were complete. It is finished, said the Lord from the cross. Now let me explain what he's talking about. When Paul was formerly Saul, and persecuting the church. Jesus appeared to him and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting them? Is that what he said? Why are you persecuting who? But Lord, I'm not persecuting you. I'm persecuting them. Guess what? Saul had a revelation on the spot when he realized that Jesus did not say, why are you persecuting them? But he said, in persecuting them, you're persecuting me. At that moment, he understood, I believe, the mystical body of Christ. That for him to put his hand upon a Christian was, was for him actually to put his hand on the Christ. Jesus said, I was in prison and you visited me. I was sick and you came and saw me. I was hungry and you fed me. See, when this revelation gets on you, then, then going to the, the pregnancy aid center or the jail or feeding the homeless takes on a whole new meaning because you're not just feeding them, you're feeding him. I. Okay? Me. You're persecuting me. Throughout all the long centuries of the Christian era, members of the body of Christ have suffered for the cause of Christ. Many of you in here right now are suffering at your workplace or at home persecution, criticism, mockery because of Christ. And do you know that every time you feel pain because of it, he suffers? 
Why are you persecuting me? Me. Christ suffers with you every time you suffer for him. Or when you suffer at all. Because you're a finger. You're a hand. You're an arm. You're a neck. You're an eye, an ear, a leg, a foot in the body of Christ. He's the head, but you and I are the body. So when the body suffers, the head suffers with us. As his body, the church, suffered, Christ the head suffered with them. The two are inseparable. So Christ's sufferings are of two kinds. Catch this. Christ has suffered once for all for our sins. And now Christ suffers with his saints. He suffered for and he now suffers with. And that suffering goes on and on and on until this whole thing is wrapped up. Can I assure you tonight, if you're hurting financially, hurting relationally, hurting in your body, don't let the devil tell you he doesn't care or he's off creating other worlds or he's paying more attention to some other saint. He's suffering with you. He really is. Why are you persecuting me? When the devil attacks you, Jesus looks at the devil and says, you're attacking me. And his day is coming. The first kind of suffering was redemptive. The second kind is responsive. This is what Paul meant when he said, I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. He knew that there would be a long time that would pass when the saints would suffer for the cause of Christ. And he said that kind of suffering where Jesus is suffering sympathetically, responsively with us, is going to go on for quite some time, and I'm only playing a part of it. That's what he meant. He wasn't finishing the work of Christ for our salvation. It's not what he meant at all. Now, next he talks about his ministries have come to the close. Read verse 25 with me. Of which I became a minister, according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. The word minister means a servant. Diakoneo, we get the word deacon from it. Diakoneo means a servant. Jesus used the same word when he said the Son of Man has come not to be ministered to, but to minister to be a servant. So a minister is actually a servant. And Paul is saying, I was chosen by God to preach and teach God's word, which is the only way a person should ever enter any kind of service, by the Lord's choosing, not by your good idea. If Whatever service to Christ you enter into should never be a good idea. It should be a God idea because ministry is not a career choice. It's a selection. We have been selected, chosen by God. Now let me tell you something, and I want you to believe this when I tell you because I'm right out of the Word of God, I'm telling you. The moment you got saved, the Holy Ghost gifted you. Every one of you. The moment you got saved, he gifted you and purposed something for you. You individually and us corporately as a body, we have a calling together, but individually you've got one yourself. And one of the great adventures of life to me and one of the great purposes of life is to find out what that was and then go do it. 
But not because you like the way it looks, but because God lays his hand on you and says, this is what I've destined you to do. Every one of you have a destiny, a calling, a divine purpose, a selection. We've all been drafted. We're all in the army. We're all in the war, and we've all got a call, all of us. Now, next he talks about a mystery. Read this with me, verse 26. The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. Now, mystery. That's mysterious, isn't it? Mystery in the Bible can mean the holy secret. It means a truth that cannot be discovered by human reasoning, but only by divine revelation. Now, what you're holding in your hand when you got your Bible, you'd have never known any of that, but by divine revelation. Now, Paul was the one chosen by the Holy Spirit to expound on the three great mystery truths in the New Testament. And here's the three great mystery truths in the New Testament. The mystery of Christ's cross in Romans, the mystery of Christ's church in Colossians and Ephesians, and the mystery of Christ's coming in First and Second Thessalonians. What do he say? Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We shall be changed. He talked about the rapture. So those three great mysteries, Paul was chosen by the Holy Spirit to write down and give them to the church for the rest of the ages. Now, but the mystery of all mysteries we want to close with tonight. It comes in verse 27. Read it with me because this has to do with you and me. To them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. Preach it now, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Greatest mystery of all is right there. Christ in you is the greatest mystery of all. The Lord Jesus not only incarnated himself in human flesh, but he chose to take up residence in each of his own. Help me, Jesus. In the Old Testament, they went into the Holy of Holies, a place built physically, a physical building. But now you and I are the Holy of Holies. The great mystery of the ages is that God wrapped himself in skin, became one of us, died for our sins, rose from the dead, sent the Holy Spirit, not to touch us, not to tickle us, but to come to live inside of us. God dwelling in jars of clay. That's the great mystery. He who once gave his life for us now abides in us to give his life to us. And that's the hope of glory. Christ comes to live in us, lost sinners though we had been, will go to live with him forever. And in light of these stupendous truths, we must, says Paul, reach every man. Read verse 28. We're closing out the chapter right now. Verse 28, him we preach warning every man, teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Jesus Christ. Every man, every man, every man. He says it three times in one verse. We are to evangelize every man, warning them, you better not reject Christ. 
We're to educate every man, teaching them the whole counsel of God. We are to edify every man that they might be presented, matured in Christ. And if you want to know the purpose for our church, we just read it. Every man, every man, every man. Inreach, outreach, upreach. There it is. Stand with me, can we? Finally, Paul reveals the secret of his strength and success and of ours. Let's finish out the chapter, verse 29. Read it with me. To this end, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me. How? Mightily. Mightily. The secret of abiding in the vine, Jesus said, without me, you can do no thing can't bear spiritual fruit without me. Can you see, say the last sentence with me as a confession here tonight? His power is working mightily in me. Let's try it again. His power is working mightily in me. Give the Lord a hand of praise tonight. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Now next